You are listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. This is our Advent series, Wrapped in Flesh. Okay, if you um, open your Bibles or if you have your Bible app on your phone, our sermon text this morning is from John 1, 1 through 5 and 14. I invite you to follow along in your Bible and you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Peace be with you. My name is uh, Nick Wirens. I serve as the associate pastor here at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. Um, We're so glad that uh, you're able to join us wherever you may be, uh, whether you be here in Louisville or celebrating Thanksgiving with your family, um, or maybe you're somewhere around the world. We appreciate you joining us. I pray that and I hope this morning that through the songs sung, through the liturgy spoken, and through the word preached, that the gospel will go forth in power. As we've talked about already, we're in this season of Advent beginning today. And the great proclamation of Advent is the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It assures us that God has entered into human history in the incarnation of the Son. Season of Advent, it's a season of waiting. It's, it's designed to cultivate our awareness of God's actions, past, present, and future. In Advent, we actually put ourselves back in Christ's story, in the story of his first coming. And we do so to heighten our anticipation of his second coming, to build a hope and anticipation for the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament promises The promises that say that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, that death will be swallowed up, and that every tear will be wiped away. In this way, Advent highlights the larger story of God's redemptive plan. Christ has come, yet not all things have reached completion. So while we remember Israel's waiting and hoping and give thanks for Christ's birth, we also as God's people, anticipate Jesus' second coming. Before we begin to look at our sermon text today, let's pray. God, we do thank you for the unseen and unheard of act of lowering yourself to take on flesh to abandon the riches that you had in heaven, to dwell amongst us, a lowly and broken people. We ask that as we begin the season of Advent, that by the power of your spirit, you would heighten our anticipation for your second coming. That we could cry out with the apostle Paul, come Lord Jesus. Jesus. 
pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the intro to John's gospel that we read this read from this morning and we'll be looking at in our sermon series is some of the most theologically rich text in all of Scripture. For the book as a whole, really this intro verses uh, chapter, chapter 1, 1 through 18, it functions much like a, a foyer in a movie theater. When you walk in, you see the posters of all the new and present feature films to give you a taste of what happens when you go back and actually watch the movies. So John's highlighting all of the major themes in this intro that he'll cover throughout his gospel. Things like Jesus' pre-existence, Jesus' union with conflict between light and dark, the rejection of Jesus, divine regeneration, Jesus' revelation of the Father, and much, much more. So because of the first 18 verses are packed with theological truths. Through our sermon series, Wrapped in Flesh, we'll be unpacking these theologically dense verses as we seek to understand more fully this season, what it means that God became man, that God wrapped himself in flesh. So as as we look at our text today, we're going to see that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But to set up the overall trajectory of our series, we're going to hunker down mostly in this aspect that Jesus is fully God. So we're going to look at uh, largely verses 1 through 5, unpacking this reality, and we're going to see five major characteristics that reveal Jesus' full deity. So the first thing that we see is that he is pre-existent. Jesus is pre-existent. John's gospel, it's different than all the other gospel narratives. John's like, no, 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 y'all. Matthew, Mark, Luke, y'all got good stuff, but the birth narrative is not far enough back. We need to go all the way back to the start of creation to understand Jesus and who he really is. We read in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Now, before we unpack this verse, we, we need to look at and understand this term, the word. Now, John, like the other gospel writers, is masterful in his creation of his gospel narrative. He's using this Greek word, logos, And in using it, he brings in this huge semantic range, this understanding from two different audiences packed largely into one word. So for the Greek reader of the day, the logos, it it referred not just to the spoken word that proceeded from somebody's mouth, but the unspoken word in the mind, or as we would call it, to one's reason. But the Greek reader would have also understood that when when he hears the word logos or the word, it refers to a universal principle that ties all of creation, all of the cosmos together. It's the rational word that brings order and unity to the entire cosmos. So for the Greek reader, Jesus then was the rational word that brought order and unity to all of creation. Then for the Hebrew reader, again, used in the same word, when logos is used, it reminds them of God's, of the power of God's word. That it's a dynamic force of his will. So the Hebrew reader, they would have thought about Genesis 1 or, and Psalm 33, 6, that God created the heaven and earth by his spoken word. 
Or they would have thought of Isaiah 55, 11. Remember that when God speaks, no matter what, his will is accomplished. So for the Hebrew reader, Jesus then is Yahweh, God the Father's effectual word. It was his, his power, his get-it-doneness, if you will. So when John refers to Jesus as the word, the logos, this is all being brought in for his readers into this loaded verse. It's a masterful, masterful um, way of communicating by John. So with that understanding, let's look back at verse 1. John says, in the beginning was the word. Now this takes anybody that's even cracked open a Bible to page 1, takes them all the way back to that story, that creation account in Genesis. Now the same is done for us in, in our country, right? There are famous lines and speeches that they take us back to a moment in history. Even if we don't remember exactly what the speech said or remember the moments themselves, it takes us back. When you hear me say four score and seven years ago, though you may not remember all of the Gettysburg Address, you remember what's going on. You remember this moment in history. When I say, I have a dream, you may not remember all the words of Martin Luther King's famous speech at the March on Washington, but it takes you back to the context, to what was going on, to the civil rights era. This verse in John 1.1 is like that for any reader of Scripture, but specifically for the Jewish readers. Takes them back to the creation account. Now, there's two important things that we need to notice and and think about here when we we read these lines. First and foremost, um, this is showing us, John's showing us that a new creation is here. We're starting afresh with God in flesh. He's here. He's come. The new creation is beginning. And the second thing that John shows us is that Jesus, the Logos, this very word that we've been talking about, always existed. This is what Paul's getting out in his, getting out in his famous Christ hymn in Colossians 1.17. He says, he is, Jesus is, before all things, here preexistence, and by him all things hold together. So the word, the logos, who brings unity and order in the chaos and who serves as God's effectual word before all, lives before all creation. So it's not a matter of Jesus being created like God the Father. He simply was. He simply existed. So first we see he is preexistent. Second, we see he is distinct from God the Father. Verse 1 again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What we're starting to see right here is, is this budding doctrine of the Trinity, it's beginning to unfold. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is complex, yet simple. The simple definition is that God is one God, yet exists in three distinct persons. All are God, yet all are distinct. The Father is different than the Son. The Father is different than the Spirit. The Son is different than the Father, and the Son is different than the Spirit, and the Spirit is different than the Father, and the Spirit is different than the Son. They're all distinct in their personhood. 
yet they're one in their godhood. So we see it coming to life here. The word Jesus was with God. It means that he was there in the beginning. In intimate proximity with Yahweh, with God the Father. He existed in eternity past, yet was distinct. The third thing we see in verse 1 there still is that he is co-equal. Jesus is co-equal with God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word was with God, distinctness, but also was God. So we see Jesus' co-equality, his divinity. This is so vital to the Christian faith to uphold Jesus' co-equality with God the Father. The sad reality is that our our familiarity with this passage has actually deadened the weight of it. We're so used to reading this passage that it's like, oh yeah, of course. Jesus is co-equal with God the Father, yeah. But don't you see that in a pluralistic age, this verse is highly controversial. This is a, a battleground statement. Or where I'm from in Texas, them are fighting words. If Jesus is God, then his exclusive claims that he makes about himself combat all other religious claims about God. Later in John, Jesus says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. He says, believe me that I, Jesus, am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves, he's saying. Because Jesus is one with God, he is co-equal in his deity. He points to himself as a way to point to the Father. This is different than Muhammad who points to Allah. This is different than the Buddha who points to nirvana. Jesus says, look to me, I am God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He claims divinity because he is God, because it's true. This is what Paul says in Colossians 2.9. He says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Jesus is co-equal with God. The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, undoubtedly, this this doctrine of the Trinity, it's, it's hard for us to grasp in our limited human perspective. But because we don't fully understand or comprehend something doesn't make it any less true or any less real. I have no idea how my iPhone works, but it works. I have no idea how a flat disc of of vinyl with some grooves on it can transport Stevie Nicks' voice from a studio from the 1970s to my living room. But my understanding of those things doesn't make them any less true, or rather my lack of understanding doesn't make those things any less true. Uh, over, Over Thanksgiving break, um, I, I read an article about dark matter, you know, because what else are you going to do over Thanksgiving? You eat turkey and read articles about dark matter. 
Uh, the article title was Dark Matter Holds Our Universe Together. No one knows what it is. The article talks about how if we were to go outside and look up at a clear night sky, we might see nine, up to 9,000 stars, little specks of light. As, it begin to peel, as the article begins to peel back layers, though, it talks about how these little specks of light to us are really gigantic balls of fire, <laughs> inferno balls, if you will. And while they're numerous to our eyes, right, 9,000 is a lot, they're a teeny small fraction of our universe. Scientists estimate that there are 100 billion, with a B, stars in our galaxy. That's our galaxy, the Milky Way, 100 billion. That in itself is overwhelming. But then scientists, they estimate that there's actually roughly 10 trillion, with a T, galaxies. So 10 billion stars in our galaxy times 10 trillion galaxies. Scientists estimate that there could be a staggering number of one septillion. That's a new one for you, maybe. Septillion stars. That's one with 24 zeros behind it. Now, what's even more mind-boggling than that, okay? In this article, getting to the dark matter here, scientists say that this is, um, these numbers right here point us to the visible universe, the things that we can actually see with our own eyes. But there are these weird forces at play that are actually five times more prevalent in the universe. This weird force is dark matter. It's estimated to make up approximately five times more of the universe than that which we can see. As as the article title said, we simply don't know anything about it. We just know that it's there. (laughs) We can see the forces and the effects of it. Here's what one physicist uh, in the article says. She says, I think it gives you intellectual and a kind of epistemic humility, a a humility of, uh, as, as Paul says, not thinking of yourselves more highly than you ought. She says that we are simultaneously super insignificant, a tiny, tiny speck of the universe. And she goes on to say, but on the other hand, we have brains in our skulls that are like these tiny gelatinous cantaloupes. And we have figured all of this out. We now know what we don't know is what she's saying. The main point of the article is that, yeah, yeah, we know, we know a lot about the universe, but there's a lot of stuff that we simply don't have the capacity to understand. The reality is the same is true about God. Deuteronomy said the secret things belong to the Lord. There's some things we simply don't have a full understanding of because of our, our limited capacity. Yeah, our, as Priya says, our gelatinous cantaloupes, they figured a lot of stuff out about God. <laughs> we have creeds and councils to formulate what God has revealed to us, but there's still stuff, if we're honest with ourselves, 
that we don't understand fully. We know the doctrinal statements of the Trinity, but there's still, there's a challenge to fully comprehending it, and that's okay. What we need to do is we need to trust that what God has revealed to us in his word is true. That's our, that's our, our faith claim right there is that what we, be, we step out in faith and say, I, I understand, but I don't fully understand God. In the challenges and the complexity of trying to comprehend the Trinity, we can join the man in Mark 9 that tells Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I, I understand, but I also don't understand. Will you help me? John goes on to, to emphasize, re-emphasize Jesus' pre-existence. In verse 2, he says, he was with God in the beginning. And then what we see in verse 3 is that John reveals to us that Jesus is the agent of creation. This is something that oftentimes we forget about Jesus. It says in verse 3, all things were created through him, Jesus, the word, the logos, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So John is trying to emphasize this point a lot because he's, he's saying it both positively and negatively. Positive, he's saying everything was created through Jesus, and negatively, he's saying nothing was created apart from him. The point is that every aspect of the created world was created through Jesus. And again, Paul says this in Colossians 1, 16. He says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So the, the creative agency of Jesus is important for us to remember because it reveals to us that he, like God the Father, is a part of creation. He's a part of creating something out of nothing. He was with God in the beginning, just as the Holy Spirit was. This also shows us, again, it points to Jesus' pre-existence, that he himself was not created. How can the one who creates out of nothing be created himself? It reveals he must have been pre-existent with God the Father, as we've seen already. The last thing we see about Jesus being fully God, we see in verse 4 and 5, that Jesus is life. Verse 4, it says, in him was life, and the, that life was the light of men. That light peeking through, as John is saying, shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Life is, is found in Jesus, the Word who is fully God. We see this theme all throughout the Gospel of John, John 5.40, talking to the religious leaders. Jesus says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. John 10.10, 10, 
Jesus says, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, Jesus, have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. Yet again, in John 10, 28, he says, I give them, my people, eternal life, and they will never perish. And then finally, the, the apex, if you will, John 14, 6 through 7, Jesus told them, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If, if you know me, you will also know my Father. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So why, why is this all important? Why are these verses that are so theologically packed talking about the deity of Jesus, why are they so important? The reality is that a core doctrine of our faith, one that we must stand on wholeheartedly, is Jesus' divinity, that he is fully God. Without it, our our faith crumbles. And the Anglican Bishop Handley Mool, he says, a savior, not quite God, So hear that, a Savior who's not fully God. A Savior not quite God is a bridge broken at the farther end. When when looking at the word Jesus, when looking at his divinity, we must hold it all together. We must affirm that he is preexistent, that he's distinct from the Father, yet co-equal with the Father. We must affirm that he's the agent of creation, that he is a life giver, as God. You see, if, if we only affirm a Jesus that's, that's partially divine, maybe a smidge of godness in all humanity, as Bishop Mule says, we're driving a car across a bridge that isn't going to get us to the other side. What's scarier is that as we're driving across the bridge, we may not see and understand that the bridge stops and pummels into the ravine of judgment until we get to the edge. Jesus is fully God. But the beauty of the Christmas season, of this Advent season, is that we see front and center that Jesus is also fully man. John writes arguably one of the most comforting lines in all of Scripture, as we read this morning in John 1, 14a, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, in in the Old Testament, Israel, God's people was on the run for much of its history. As Israel lived on the run, they, they put up nomadic tent villages along the way. They didn't have a home, so they camped out. God met them where they were. He met them in one place, or rather, uh, one structure, in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was simply a tent. The nomadic people of Israel 
had a God that was nomadic with them, meeting them in the way that they were living where they were. So as, his, as God's people lived in tents, he met with them in a tent. What's happening here is actually John picks up this Old Testament language and he says that Jesus camped out with us. He put on the same tent, the, the same uh, human uh, tent, if you will, the garment of flesh. He put that on. The man who was fully God became fully man, just as we are. A couple months ago, uh, my oldest son was diagnosed with croup, which um, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's like a, a baby upper respiratory infection. Um, but with croup comes a severe and sometimes, if I can say it, life-threatening cough. What happens is, is the baby's uh, trachea constricts. As they cough, it swells more and more. And in severe cases, it, it can suffocate the child. My wife and I, we have these fancy baby monitors like most parents do, right, that are like video. Like it's basically what we're doing right now. It's like I've got a live stream of my kid in my house when he's sleeping. I could have easily slept in my bed and watched the live stream or the, the live stream, the baby monitor. I could have heard his coughing. I could have watched and make sure he was breathing well from the comfort of my own bed. But for the the care and safety of my own son, I traded in my my nice, plush, king-size memory foam mattress, my nice, warm-down comforter, and I slept on a floor for a week on a pull-out couch mattress thrown down on the ground. Had a sheet, some not-too-warm blankets, It would have been serviceable to sleep in my own bed. I, I really, I could have done it. I could have watched the monitor. I could have heard everything, the coughing fits. I could have run upstairs as soon as he started going through a coughing fit. But I, I wouldn't have been there to bear the burden of, of sleeplessness with my son, to comfort him as he suffered through coughing fits for hours, to give him water. <laughs> In a moment's notice. You see, what's beautiful about our God is that He does the same thing for us. Our God is not distant from us. Though He is fully God, as Paul says in Philippians 2, He had all riches in heaven. Though He had the king size mattress, the nice pillow, the nice down comforter. He left all those things to slum it with us on the floor on a pull-out couch mattress. Rather than holding on to the riches of heaven, Jesus took on the poverty of earth for us. For our sake and for our salvation, Jesus, who is fully God, became fully man. He wrapped himself in flesh. 
The early church father, Irenaeus, he writes, Jesus Christ in his infinite love has become what we are in order that he may make us entirely what he is. He has become what we are in order that he may make us entirely what he is. You see, church, the Advent season is is an invitation to believe upon the true Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man. If your Jesus is missing either one, he's not the Jesus of Scripture. If you're watching here today and you're a Christian, I urge you, as we enter into this Advent season, to deeply contemplate these truths about Christ. It is from a right understanding of who Jesus is that we then can have right practice. So the the simple invitation, if you're a Christ follower, is to ponder these things anew. That's the point of Advent, to remind yourself that God became man for you. If you're watching today and you've never truly believed upon Christ, you've never really believed or understood this reality that though fully God, that he wrapped himself in flesh, that though fully God, he became fully man so that you could become a part of his family. So the invitation to you today, if, if you're watching for the first time, maybe, maybe you stumbled upon this online and you never really believed upon Christ, the invitation is to believe rightly about who Jesus is. Believing, as, he, as Irenaeus beautifully said, that Jesus became what you are in order that you may become entirely like what he is. Churches, we remember together what Christ has done for us. But as, as we talked about in the beginning of the sermon, put, us, put ourselves back in the story and yearn together for our beautiful Savior who was fully God and fully man to come back. Let us yearn for that second coming. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.